Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate B and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Dennis Hall, Chief Executive Officer of Yellowtail Financial Planning. Investors and non-investors alike are getting excited about driverless cars, robots and artificial intelligence. But if you're seeking investment growth from technology, it seems that you should be targeting companies pursuing slightly more mundane activities. Kate, you've been looking at this. Can you explain? Yes, I've been speaking to Walter Price, who's a manager of Allianz Technology Trust. And he was saying that what we're seeing in technology is basically the industry is maturing. So while, as you say, we think of things like driverless cars and, you know, all those kind of exciting things coming out of Silicon Valley. In fact, what happened to or the the share price areas which grew the most last year were the companies who were doing things like share buybacks and kind of taking corporate actions to boost earnings that way rather than um, growing organically by bringing out exciting new products and things. So it's, I guess, it's that difference between inorganic and organic growth, you might say, um, which is, you know, not a very sexy story. But in fact, that's where the growth in the sector seems to be coming from. Okay, and what examples of tech companies doing this? Um, So it's a lot of the semiconductor ones. That's an area which is kind of maturing and seeing a much slower growth profile. Um, So Avago and Micron Technology would be two examples of those ones that he holds. Okay, uh, and Walter Price um, has, in general, rebalanced the investment trust Allianz Technology Trust's portfolio. Um, What exactly has he done and why? Um, well, so he splits his stocks um, into three, I guess, buckets, you would say. Uh, so he divides them between value stocks. Um, and that's where he's referring to income paying, slower growth um, stocks, so things like semiconductors. Um, so he has those. He has growth stocks, which are the kind of very fast growth names like Amazon, Facebook, Fangs, people call them. And then he's got other ones which are growth at a reasonable price or GARP stocks. Um, And that would be things like Microsoft, which are kind of in the middle, I guess. Um, So what he's doing is he's actually reducing that GARP slice, I guess, right down because, in fact, those valuations have come up a lot. And he's increased um, his weighting towards those value stocks. He has tended in the past to really like growth stories. And I guess, you know, you can see why just because of the the potential for enormous growth in the future. And in fact, what he's been finding that it's those dividend paying, slower growth profile value stocks, which have been performing. So he's increased weight to value and growth at the expense of GARP. Okay. And um, from which of these does he expect earnings to be um, largely generated from in the near future? So, in fact, he's expecting in the near future the growth to come from those semiconductor stocks and and the kind of value ones, all of those companies which are working really hard to boost revenue through things like share buybacks, through things like selling off, um, you know, bits of the business, mergers, acquisitions. He's expecting that to do well in the near, in the near term, but hoping that in the longer term, some of those exciting growth things like AI, um, robotics, um, cloud computing, hoping that those will, will come out in the long term as, as generating good returns for the portfolio. Okay. Now, now you said he, he had a balance. So although he has um, some of these other things, he does still have some growth stocks. What are examples of growth stocks he's targeting? So Workday would be one. It's a software as a service company. It's been doing really badly for three years, but he's hoping that um, with the kind of growth of cloud computing and things like that, that it will that will come to fruition. 
He's also owning Tesla again. He didn't own it last year, um, but now he's being a company that makes is it electric cars? electric cars, yeah. yeah. And it's it's going to be bringing out this Model Three electric car later in the year, and that's kind of I think the first electric car for the mass market. Essentially, it's like a low cost one, um, and he's really thinking that that could work. Um, also, Tesla tapped into a lot of big data kind of trends and in, into that kind of driverless car trend as well potentially okay so some exciting stuff but um he's obviously been busy how has this been bearing out how is the fund at walter price runs allianz technology trust how has it been performing uh well so last year was not a good year for him at all he underperformed the index and that's because of the real outperformance of things like semiconductor stocks um which he just wasn't exposed to a lot of his stocks um actually fell share prices fell despite according to him, earnings upgrades. Um, but he's pulled that back because of re-weighting the portfolio more towards value since the start of the year. So over five years, the performance is, is very strong. He's returned 180, just over 180% um, against the index is 130. Um, and in one year, he's up as well, 70% against a return of 60% for the index. So long-term performance is very good, a bit of a shaky last year, um, but hopefully he's, he's pulled it back now. Okay. Dennis, do you think tech funds are a good area for investors to include in their portfolios? I think it's an area that would increase somebody's U.S. exposure. A lot of these firms are predominantly U.S.-based. For anyone investing in tech, you need to know a bit about that area. I have a longer memory than perhaps some newer investors. I can go back to the tech, the last tech bubble and the crash that we had there. And you, know, you had Henderson Technology Fund that lost more than 90% of its value. It's not an area necessarily for the faint-hearted, although that sector has matured quite a lot. And if you look at firms like Apple, um, you know their, their, their market cap is almost the same size as the, the entire market cap of Spain, for example. Um, so you're not talking about minnows always. Okay. Now, you said it's not for faint-hearted. So more specifically, what type of investors could consider tech funds? And what would be a reasonable allocation of their portfolio to put into tech funds? It depends on what, you know, what else they're invested in. I think if you want to increase your exposure to the US, and I don't think that's a bad thing, actually. A, a lot of investors are very UK-centric. So to get some US exposure and into an area that, that has, is, is now beginning, I think, to, to, to be a permanent feature. You know, all businesses are using tech, and we're looking at ways that techs improve all the time. Good long-term investors that can stand a bit of volatility um, and, but I would probably, if I was being direct, probably not put any more than about 5% of a portfolio um, into, into something as specific as tech. Okay. Because you're going to get that exposure through, through some other firms anyway. Yeah. Perhaps in um, broad global portfolios, I imagine they include some of those big names as well. Turning to actual funds, um, we've been talking about Allianz Technology Trust. Do you think this is a good tech fund option or which funds do you like for getting exposure to tech stocks? I've been looking for, for a long time at Polar Capital Trust. Over a five-year period, the performance is not quite as good. But I think when you look at, you know, stretch it out over a longer term and, and some of the short-term periods, it's, it's there or thereabouts. The top 10 holdings are very similar with the exclusion of Tesla. Yeah, the Allianz Trust has got a, 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 a smaller number of, of holdings. Polar has got, probably got double and he's going for more of those smaller growth stories. So it's not a replacement necessarily. It's an alternative, particularly if you're trying to look for those smaller growth stocks that, that, that 
Allianz might not be holding. As you said before, these funds are not for the faint-hearted. There was a boom and bust around the turn of the millennium. So can you elaborate a bit on the risks of tech funds? The risks are very often we don't know what we're investing in. Um, and if you're investing in smaller tech companies, the normal rules of valuations may not apply. They may not have an earnings stream. You know, you look at some of the, the flotations and IPOs of, of companies that have, have, have been running uh, losses. You've got the Snapchats of the world, the, the, the Facebooks, when they first launched, are saying, well, here's an earnings stream that doesn't support anything like the valuations, is that I, I suppose you need to have a, an understanding of the sector, probably an understanding of society almost, what, you know, what is society going to make of this? Where are the revenues going to come from? Can we see that happening? There are an awful lot of very well-known names in tech that have disappeared um, completely and taken an awful lot of money with them. And the, you know, the once uh, hugely successful and, and uh, Yahoo is, is a shadow of its former self. So I think you need a completely different mindset when you're looking at tech. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you, Dennis. And you can see Kate's interview of Walter Price in this week's magazine and on the website. Now, if you think tech stocks are a bit racy, then hold your breath when you hear about what we're going to discuss next. Emma had a meeting with the manager of this fund. What is it, Emma, and what does it invest in? That's right. The fund in question is Cavendish AIM. And as the name suggests, this fund invests in the alternative investment market, or AIM for short. And it's actually one of the few funds to invest exclusively in AIM. So it definitely makes it more racy than other funds. Okay. Now, the alternative investment market, or AIM as most people call it, has many smaller companies. What's the possible risk facing these? And um, what does Paul Mumford say about it? Well, there have been some worries that the UK's withdrawal from the EU might lead to some companies listed on AIM to want to go and join other EU markets to get um, exposure to the, you know, to the EU. But the manager of this fund, Paul Mumford, really doesn't think that's going to happen. Um, he says that these companies benefit from lower costs and less regulation on AIM compared to other markets in, say, Paris or Frankfurt. And they also benefit from the fact they get to deal in the international business language of English. So he thinks that these advantages are enough to keep companies that are listed on AIM staying on that market. Okay, so what are examples of areas and companies that Mr Mumford thinks are resilient? Well, healthcare is the biggest sector in the portfolio at just over 20%. And Mr Mumford likes, tends to like medical supplies and product companies. So examples include Advanced Medical Solutions, which makes devices and bandages, and Sinclair Pharma, which makes dermatology products. Okay, and what's his um, process for selecting his um, portfolio companies? Um, well, he's a manager who tends to look for undervalued stocks. He describes himself as a bit of a contrarian, goes against the crowd, and he aims to buy stocks that are loved at, at cheap prices. He tends to take a bottom-up approach, so he'll focus on the company's individual attributes rather than a sector, um, and, and that's how he tends to, to find companies that he'd like to invest in. So that's how he picks his winners, but um, what does he avoid? Well, despite really liking healthcare, he tends to avoid biotech companies that focus exclusively on um, developing drugs from scratch. And the reason he says is that it's because it's often very expensive. Many of these drugs tend to fail at the final trial level and so you don't actually ever make it to market. So he tends to avoid biotech. And he also doesn't really like investing in 
overseas companies that have come to list on AIM, saying that it's often the case that these companies can't list on their own home markets. And that's why they've come to list on the AIM market, because it's, you know, Lisa market Total in some basket sense. case is not wanted in their home yeah, places. Okay. So he tries, you know, he, yeah. he steers clear yeah. of them. Yeah, good plan. Now, you said um, rather than avoids, tends to avoid. Mm. So are there any exceptions to this? Yes, there are. He does have an exception for a biotech company um, called Ergamed, which has a dual business model, which is one of the reasons he likes it. So as well as the fact that they do co-develop drugs with other companies and therefore get a share of the revenues that that generates from the drugs that come to market, they also have a second business where they're providing services to other pharma companies. So they've got this, you know, sort of double way of making money, which which he likes. Okay. Dennis, um, what do you think about investing in AIM shares? I think if you're not subcontracting that out to an experienced fund manager, you need to be very knowledgeable and very careful. It's a slightly less regulated market. Some of those issues have already been mentioned. And if you can't read a balance sheet and you can't understand the businesses that you're investing in, um, you could potentially be walking into into a you know, a significant loss-making position sometime in the future. And there's, I, I think there's an awful lot of good money chasing too few very good companies on AIM. Um, and, and that's a, a potential problem for me for, for a different reason. You hinted at um, less regulation. Is this the main risk of investing in AIM? Or what would you say are the main risks um, you have to be aware of when investing in AIM shares? Well, I think there are an awful lot of people investing in AIM shares through... A portfolio that trying to qualify for business property really for mm-hmm. inheritance tax planning and if the government decided to pull the plug on aim shares qualifying for business property relief there's potentially an awful lot of money that could be just pulled away from that market so i'm not saying that those companies and you've got the likes of majestic for example that you know very good companies um that that, that are showing good profits but is their share price being driven by business fundamentals or is it being driven by the huge weight of money that's coming in trying to shelter from inheritance tax? And it's a question that I think needs asking um, and it needs asking of any manager that is, that is investing that money for you. Okay. Um, bearing this in mind, do you think that one of these um, BPR portfolios or IHT portfolios of AIM stocks or Paul Mumford's fund, um, which are purely focused on AIM, are they a good idea? I think it's, it's that adage of not trying to let the tax tail wag the investment dog. If you were like investing in, and, and let's face it, these, a lot of these are sub-smaller company level, if that's an area of your portfolio that you want to invest in, that you can afford that level of volatility, you can, fall, you can afford the potential uh, level of drawdown if, if markets go against you, I think AIM potentially has got some very good little diamonds in it, and it's an area that you'd invest in. Um, I think most people would be better following a good manager and a good manager probably that's not constrained by trying to get inheritance tax relief for you. Can you elaborate on that? Um, how is the best way of getting exposed to AIM? But by finding a, a good, well, you've mentioned one, a good um, AIM manager. Or if you've got expertise in picking stocks and reading balance sheets and reading company reports, in areas that you have some specialisation in, that you can be buying stocks directly. Okay, and of any good managers that you'd suggest? No, I when I'm buying in AIM, I it, it, like to go for individual companies personally. Okay, uh, I've mentioned one of them being Majestic, for example. Yeah, the wine company. Okay. Yes. 
Thank you, Dennis. Some useful suggestions. And you can read Emma's full interview of Paul Mumford in this week's magazine and the website. This week's portfolio clinic features an 80-year-old investor who wants to use his portfolio to cover retirement costs, possibly including those of long-term care for him and his wife. The reader has around three quarters of a million pounds in the portfolio, mostly in funds and investment trusts, as well as two investment properties worth about the same amount. Dennis, you are one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio. Care home costs can be astronomical, so while three quarters of a million pounds sounds like an awful lot of money, is it likely to be sufficient? I think in this case it probably is, um, because... there is other income, so it's not as though this portfolio is the sole source of, of, of revenue. The average time spent in a care home is approximately four years, and that cost could be circa 60000 a year. So there's about 12 years worth, if there was no growth, there's about 12 years worth of capital is sat in that portfolio to support care funds. Um, or if, if, if husband and wife both went in there, that's two times, you know, there's six years apiece. The likelihood of that happening is very low. If they were both in care homes, there's also the main residence that could be sold down to support this. So I don't think this is um, a risky strategy to take. I think that's more than enough money uh, within the portfolio to support them if they if they found themselves in, in the position of needing care homes. Okay, so um, this read and his wife have sorted themselves out in um, what seems like a, a sensible way. But Let's turn to other people. If they're saving for long-term care, roughly what sort of sum should they be aiming for and how should they go about trying to build that sum up? I believe it's for most people it's not practical to have a separate fund set aside to meet care home costs. The care home is, is, a, is part of that retirement stage. So you're looking at the, your entire retirement funding and do you have enough income to meet your retirement needs? And is that sufficient if your retirement needs changed and you had to go into a, a care home? So if you were looking at, at, at needing a retirement income of, say, uh, to, to meet you in care of £60,000, if that happened to be the same as the, the income you need in retirement, you know, you, you need a million, a million and a half of, of pension fund and other assets, and not forgetting that could be the home if, if, if the home was sold down or used to, to support that funding at oh. sometime in the future. This reader's got a good sum, but he's got quite a high proportion of his portfolio in Asian emerging markets. He's also 80, so he might need to fund his care costs, well, quite soon. So if you're needing to draw down your money quite soon, are Asia and emerging markets really a suitable allocation? From a risk potential, no. I mean, I can see this this reader is going for growth, that, that, that big Asian growth story, but potentially is that there's some illiquidity in there. Or if, if the global economy tanked, that part of the world is likely to fall faster and further, and that could have a serious impact if that's the time that he wanted to start drawing down funds from that portfolio. And it's perhaps wiser to take a, a more traditional approach and forego some of that future growth. OK, so what would this more traditional approach be and what would be appropriate assets? I think you would have a global allocation broadly in line with um, you know, the, the, the world market index to get that exposure, a lot more in developed markets less in emerging markets and perhaps instead of the emerging markets have a, a bit more exposure to smaller companies in developed markets where 
that there's a bit more liquidity and you've probably removed some of that currency exposure. Um, and probably, therefore, I'd cap my exposure to emerging markets at about 10%. Okay. Turning away from people in that situation, what about investors of a long-term time horizon high-risk appetite? Emerging markets are a good option for them at the moment. I think when you say at the moment, it's, this is almost like trying to time the market, which I think is incredibly mm. difficult to do. If you're concentrating on the long-term view and you can afford to take a long-term view, the volatility that might have, then emerging markets are an answer. They're not the whole answer. Um, as I, I mentioned it earlier, I, I personally think you can get a more consistent um, return from small caps and value stocks in developed markets. But I wouldn't ignore emerging markets, but I'd probably take a, a, a global exposure to that rather oh. than trying to pick this year's winner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have it in mind, but let's just say then for long term time horizon, perhaps hold some emerging markets in Asia alongside UK smaller companies. Yes. Okay. Um, going back to the Swedish portfolio, he really doesn't like US equities. Now, some people might say that's wise because they're on arguably high valuations. And obviously, with the election of Donald Trump and whatever he is going to do in the next four years, we don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty ahead. Should other people be avoiding the US as well? Um, no, I don't get that philosophy, really. You know, there's the US is the market with a, the highest market capitalization. It's doing business globally. The companies that, that are listed are doing business globally. Um, I mentioned Apple, you know, Apple stock earlier, the, the size of that one stock alone, and there are others just behind it. Why would you want to avoid investing in some of the largest companies in the world that are trading globally? I find it incredibly difficult for people to time the market consistently. They may get one or two calls right. Um, I believe you have to be in the U.S. market if the world goes, you know, if the world goes bang, you know, the, uh, the U.S. market tends to suffer less, recovers first. I would want to be in it all the time. Just finally, with Swedish portfolio, he's got about 50 holdings and most of these are funds. Is 50 funds an appropriate number for a portfolio? For this client, clearly it is. It's what he likes. But for me, it feels like a lot. Um, I think you can get some gl good global exposure via just a few funds from firms like Vanguard um, and then focus and, and decide where your focus is going to be and find the one or two best funds if, you're, if you want that uh, very active um, focused manager approach. When I look at our own portfolios, I look at my own pension fund, I have no more than about 14 funds in my portfolio. Otherwise, I think I'm, I'm diluting way too much and the potential growth that I might get from, from those areas is diluted out across other funds. Okay, thank you, Dennis. Some really helpful points. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang at Investors Chronicle and Dennis Hall, Chief Executive Officer of Yellowtail Financial Planning. You can read more on saving for retirement, tech stocks and AIM in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 